I'm John Norton Moore, the director of the Center for National Security Law here at the University of Virginia. And I'm going to um, introduce uh, Dean Risa Golubov of the University of Virginia School of Law, who will um, give you a welcome on behalf of the law school. Uh, Risa is the 12th and the first female dean of the University of Virginia School of Law. She is a nationally renowned legal historian whose scholarship and teaching focuses on American constitutional and civil rights law, and especially their historical development in the 20th century. As you might imagine, uh, for a uh, deanship of one of the great American law schools, she has all of the uh, appropriate credentials. She uh, clerked for Judge Guido Calabresi uh, of the Second Circuit, and then clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer of the United States Supreme Court, in addition to serving as a Fulbright Scholar uh, to South Africa. She won a few years ago the uh, University of Virginia All-University Teaching Award, and for me, one of the most extraordinary um, elements in uh, Reese's uh, incredible career uh, is her remarkable scholarship and writing ability. Um, Risa's first book, The Lost Promise of Civil Rights, her first book, think about this, uh, won the Order of the Coef Prize in Law. We have no Nobel Prize in Law. The Nobel Prize equivalent is the Order of the Coef Prize. Uh, for one's first book uh, to win that is absolutely uh, extraordinary and says a great deal about uh, the wonderful writing and uh, academic ability, scholarly ability, uh, that our uh, wonderful new dean has. But for me, the most wonderful thing about the new dean is she just has an infectious personality. Uh, this is a magnificent lady that you just want to be around her and to uh, listen to what she has to say. So, Dean Golubov, thank you so much for coming to welcome on behalf of the law school, and it's uh, all yours. Thank you for that lovely introduction, John. That was, that was really, really sweet. So welcome, everyone, to the University of Virginia School of Law and to the Center uh, for National Security Laws Conference on a Region in Turmoil, Conflicts in Middle East uh, Law and Policy. And um, I want to thank John for inviting me to welcome you and for being the moving force behind all things national security here at the law school uh, and for especially conferences uh, like this one. I think this conference is an example of one of the things that we do so well here at UVA Law School. We tackle complex, important issues from legal perspectives and policy perspectives. We bring together experts from the academy, from government, from the military, from civil society organizations, not to do the easy work, but to do the hard work, the hard work of thinking deeply and from every angle about the historical and social nuances of conflicts, the role of law and policy and how they interact, the role of the US military and its coalition partners, and the role of international law. There's no question 
that this is an exceptionally timely topic of national security concern, as the conflicts being assessed in the Middle East and North Africa, and particularly the hostilities underway with ISIS, continue to take many lives, destroy civilian infrastructure, including cultural treasures that can never be replaced, and displace thousands of individuals. These, com these conflicts are complex in nature, influenced by religious, tribal, and cultural factors that are often difficult to understand. And we're lucky here that uh, today we are going to try to understand them on all of those uh, different levels. And it's also necessary, as this con conference will also do, uh, to examine them uh, from both a legal perspective and a policy perspective, thinking about diplomacy, thinking about the use of force, thinking about the law that regulates the use of force. These are all essential and critical components to a coherent and workable national security strategy. It's also necessary to think about how the U.S. military and its coalition partners are engaged in some way in essentially all of the conflicts at issue uh, in the conference today, including, of course, the ongoing hostilities with ISIS in both Iraq and Syria. We're particularly pleased to have with us such an incredible array of people, uh, and I want to, in, in particular, in, um, uh, say welcome to Ambassador Crocker, uh, who, given his past service to our nation, might best be viewed as the former U.S. ambassador to this region as a whole. Uh, the U.S. has now been militarily involved in this area of the world for 15 years and counting. And Ambassador Crocker will speak to the wide range of U.S. policy challenges associated with these region, with the region uh, and these conflicts. And we are really fortunate to have him here today. So thank you for coming. Uh, the international law issues associated with these ongoing conflicts are numerous. How are they to be characterized? Why is it important how we characterize them? What are the legal bases for U.S. and coalition movement uh, and involvement in these conflicts? And perhaps most importantly, to what extent does the law of armed conflict apply to these conflicts? And what are the important law of armed conflict issues to which these hostilities give rise? That's a lot of questions. And again, the answers to these questions are both complex and nuanced. In fact, there are no definitive answers. There are uh, uh, many, many conversations that will be had, and the quality and diversity of the participants that the National Security Law Center has put together today and the intensity of discussion that I know will follow uh, promise both new insight and new perspectives by the end of today on both the policy issues and the legal issues involved. So I congratulate the Center for National Security Law uh, for its organization and sponsorship of this conference, and I welcome you all to what I know will be a stimulating, cross-cutting, and productive day, one that I wish I could stay to share in, and I am sorry that I will not be able to. Uh, but welcome to all of you, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the, the day, and I know that you will. Thank you. Dean Golubov, thank you very much. Uh, we have a token of appreciation for you and all of our speakers today. So uh, we thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Right. It's heavy. Right. Be warned when you take it. <laughs> thank you so thank much. You have very a much. wonderful day. Well, let me add uh, to uh, the dean's wonderful uh, welcome, uh, a welcome on behalf of the Center for National Security Law, and to add uh, just a few comments to uh, uh, present uh, the overview of the issues that we're interested here uh, in in this wonderful 
uh, conference with all the uh, superb experts that we have here today. Sadly, in assessing the state of the world today, the Middle East and parts of Africa are in turmoil. While there are many dimensions of the turmoil as it affects different nations, the struggle against ISIS or Daesh and other rogue Islamist terror groups is of central concern. ISIS is destabilizing the Arab Middle East and parts of Africa, and in areas it controls, ISIS is carrying out genocide and culture side. It is generating a global terrorist threat, including horrific terror attacks in Europe, and it has aspirations for the same in the United States. Further, ISIS is one of only a few terror movements actually to control substantial territory and to function, however brutally, as a government. The resulting control of territory, population, and resources has, in turn, increased the severity and persistence of the threat. Thus, while ISIS likely could have been more easily contained in its formative period, the challenge today is formidable. This conference will examine the ongoing conflicts in the Middle East and North Africa to include the struggle against ISIS. We are fortunate to have brought together some of the top experts in the world to discuss this challenge. As we proceed, I would urge that we keep before us the complexity of the challenge. At a minimum, an effective response presents three groupings of issues. Effective politico-military warfighting, extenuating circumstances, and challenges for an effective response. Let us simply identify a few of the key issues under each heading. Effective political-military warfighting. This includes engaging and winning in the struggle for ideas against the radical ISIS message, engaging and winning in the military struggle against ISIS and ISIS-related terrorism, and engaging and winning in the end game of restoring stable governance in areas now consumed by ISIS violence. Extenuating factors, these include the substantial geographic and cultural diversity of affected states, the Sunni-Shia conflict, the destabilizing Iranian and Russian activities in the region, the ongoing genocide in Syria, the massive refugee crisis engulfing the region and spilling over into Europe and elsewhere, the frequent presence of alternative rogue Islamist terror groups seeking to take the place of ISIS wherever ISIS is defeated, and modern technology, particularly the Internet, which multiplies the threat and permits these radical terror groups to reach out globally to attract converts and the mentally unstable to carry out their jihad by proxy. Challenges for an effective response. These include, it is essential that the politico-military struggle against ISIS 
be waged with the strong support of the great majority of Muslim and Arab nations. The front line in the political struggle against the ISIS message must be Muslim and Arab. As such, America's actions must attract rather than alienate these key countries. Effective military warfighting against ISIS should assemble a powerful international coalition, including our NATO allies. If possible, the coalition effort should receive the endorsement of the United Nations Security Council. Though clearly the struggle against ISIS presents a classic setting of individual and collective defense against aggression. The war against ISIS should conform fully with the laws of war. There should be no return to torture light with the broad harm it did to the Iraq war effort. While, of course, respecting our constitutional structure of civilian control of the military, the necessary war fighting should be rooted in sound professional military judgment. With General James Mattis as Secretary of Defense and Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster as Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, one would anticipate that this will be the case. And finally, the critical endgame in each country that is currently embroiled in conflict must assure stable governance, the rule of law, and protection of human rights. It must not lead to an endless cycle of violence. This, in turn, may be one of the most serious challenges in the struggle. We will now begin the conference with a strategic overview by one of the nation's top experts on ISIS in the region, Jessica Lewis McFaith. Jessica? Good morning, everyone. I am thrilled to be back. Uh, I find that the discussions that we have here at UVA Law are some of the most riveting and, frankly, educational for me uh, as we talk about the different arenas of expertise that are required in order to, de to develop national security policy for the United States. I am not a lawyer. I am an intelligence professional. I spent eight years in the Army in MI, military intelligence, and then got out of the Army and joined a Washington-based think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, where I discovered that I had uh, the opportunity there to perform what we now call intelligence from open sources. So the threat brief that I'm going to give you now is exactly that. It is an intelligence brief, uh, but it is developed utterly from unclassified and unofficial sources, uh, which I hope is a foundation for uh, an understanding of the early indicators of change that percolate up in the places where we don't expect to see them. These kinds of open source cues are what our think tank hopes to contribute to the national security space so that other uh, intelligence can be laid on to drive after further answers to those questions. So yes, I started off my research at ISW on ISIS, which was, when I started, still called AQI al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was an affiliate of the al-Qaeda Global Network. They split over a couple of issues that in the grand scheme are not actually fundamental differences. So this is one of the first points that I want to make. 
We could err, in my opinion, by targeting ISIS so narrowly that we miss the fact that its intermediate and ultimate objectives are the same objectives that al-Qaeda has, and that even ISIS plus al-Qaeda is an insufficient definition. I'm also very concerned about scoping the problem too broadly to one of religion, perhaps, or even radical Islam. I prefer targeting the Salafi jihadi ideology and the movement globally of which ISIS and al-Qaeda are a part as the problem. But let's look at these two networked organizations that are pursuing the Salafi jihadi goal with proactive and phased and well-developed and articulated strategies, ISIS and al-Qaeda, looking at those strategies, they have the same strategy. They have the same phased approach. The main difference between ISIS and al-Qaeda that we see and feel today that perhaps may have too much of an influence upon our different strategies for them is that they think they're in different phases. They both believe that a Social revolution should precede the military campaign to break states and seize control. Al-Qaeda believes that they are still in the social revolution phase. How Al-Qaeda is operating in Syria is a wonderful example of Al-Qaeda's success in that phase. ISIS believes there has been enough social revolution to move on to the military phase, and in fact, that it is strategic to fight multiple enemies at once. Al-Qaeda thinks that one enemy at once is generally uh, a more uh, sound approach. Why does ISIS's work? Well, let's look at the broader environment in which ISIS, for example, has fought. ISIS is fighting Iran and Iranian-backed groups in Iraq and Syria. They are fighting the US and our partners in the region. They are fighting what they call Talgut regimes, uh, they, are a fight, they are fighting apostates. Essentially, they are establishing that everybody who is not with their movement, even al-Qaeda, anybody who fights them on the battlefield is an enemy. All of those enemies of ISIS have conflicts among themselves. The more ISIS can fight them all at once, the more it can exploit those vulnerabilities among the relationships of other actors. So as we flip that to try to describe the broader challenge that we're facing, ISIS has diagnosed our challenge quite well. Our strategy to counter ISIS has been coalition-oriented. I think that's a real strength. But no, numerous actors, and I'll start with ISIS first, have begun to treat that coalition strategy as a vulnerability for the US. ISIS fights, for example, around al-Bab and Raqqa in Syria right now. Uh, to exploit the same amongst multiple actors whose interests don't align. So looking at that piece of terrain in northern Syria, Raqqa is one of those two main capitals along with Mosul that ISIS still controls. Syrian Kurds, backed by the US, are attacking ISIS from the north. Opposition groups, including Al-Qaeda, backed by Turkey, are fighting ISIS from the northwest. The Syrian regime, backed by Iran and Russia, is fighting ISIS from the south. And we are doing deliberate strikes around ISIS, trying to figure out exactly what to do in the midst of these three different ground actors on whom, if we were to take ISIS out of the equation, we're struggling to figure out exactly what our Syrian strategy is and who we're going to back 
And that is an opportunity that ISIS exploits. It's an opportunity that Iran and Russia and Al-Qaeda are exploiting too. So let me take that particular battlefield, that seam where Turkish-backed groups and Al-Qaeda, the PKK, which is Turkey's number one terrorist threat with whom we are aligned against ISIS, the pro-regime axis in Syria backed by Iran and Russia, those actors are going to collide on the subject of what happens after al-Bab, a town called Manbij and Raqqa. And we are the ones who are least well positioned to advance our interests against ISIS as that next phase of their objectives plays forward. So my first big point this morning is that I am concerned that in targeting ISIS alone in the region, that we have thrown ourselves off the merry-go-round of the dynamics that are driving the region now. Other actors are exploiting our focus on ISIS to advance their own objectives. And unfortunately, while a number of these actors, as I've just presented, have fairly drastically different objectives in the region, several of them have an intermediate objective to drive the US out of the region that as they proceed with that objective is advancing the interests of all. So the weird alignments are coming into play now. One of the ones that I'd like to shine a light on is Russia and ISIS. Russia and ISIS are clearly enemies. <laughs> they seek to destroy each other. But when one of them acts against the US and the region, it advances the other's interests. Since 2014, which is really when our anti-ISIS strategy began to kick off, ISIS seized Mosul in June 2014, a number of things have happened in the region that have drastically changed the landscape. One of those changes has been uh, the establishment of strategic bases uh, in Syria by Russia. The placement of rather advanced uh, access denial systems there so that we have to deconflict our air in Syria and increasingly in Iraq with Russia. Russia and Iran are in a durable coalition right now that is proceeding more and more in the direction of an alliance in my view. And their interests in the region are not really going to come in conflict until the US has been ousted. And the truth is, across the board for the rest of their interests in the region, they, their interests really only diverge on two subjects, Israel and Saudi Arabia. So we could also err in trying to imagine that it is in the interest of the United States to form coalitions with Iran and Russia in order to fight ISIS. In Iraq right now, we have almost done so. For the battle in Mosul, for example, and where we're really, really threading this needle very carefully because we don't want to uh, combine forces with Iran against ISIS. But Iranian-backed militias with Quds Force are in the Mosul campaign. The deconfliction that we're doing is incredibly surgical in terms of literally which micro-grid square they occupy and which one we do. Are our airstrikes supporting their operations or deliberately not their operations? And here's the other hard thing. Iranian-backed groups have infiltrated the Iraq security forces, in particular the federal police and the MOI, the, uh, the Ministry of the Interior. 
so that it is actually very hard for us now, and unfortunately this was deliberate on Iran's part, for us to support the Iraqi security forces uh, that we spent so much time and effort building without also supporting Iran. Iran's program has advanced in Iraq and Syria over the course of these three years, too. They've developed an appetite for air-ground-coordinated operations. They've also developed that appetite now in Syria with battles like Aleppo, which just transpired. Uh, the, uh, the regime, supported by Iran and Russia, drove out the opposition from the town in northern Syria that uh, behaves a lot like Mosul in terms of uh, how the Syrian war and Syrian society had manifested. Aleppo was a really, really, really big battle and it was a big win for the regime and therefore Russia and Iran. Russian air coordinated with an incredible coalition of Iranian-backed ground actors uh, to achieve that battlefield effect. This was really incredible experimental war fighting on the part of Russia and Iran. By the way, Iranian groups in Syria now don't just include the Quds Force. The Quds Force is a traditional expeditionary uh, element that works with proxies in the region. Uh, it is also another hallmark of Iranian warfare and an impressive one, thinking of groups like Hezbollah, for example, which are also ground forces fighting with Iran on behalf of the regime in Syria. Iran is also now deploying its internal defense forces to Syria to augment that mission because the mission is so big that the Quds Force aren't big enough. So we have martyr videos that are clearly visible on the internet in Farsi. I think that Iranians don't think that Americans outside of the intelligence community read Farsi. And interestingly enough, there are plenty of uh, young people working at think tanks who do. Uh, martyr statements that make it clear that we have besieges fighting in Aleppo. We have Fatima Yoon fighting in Aleppo. We have IRGC ground forces. We have Artesh. These are units that are not supposed to be on an expeditionary mission. They're supposed to be on a defensive mission. So Iran is reinventing how it's going to fight in the region before it changes its doctrine away from a defensive vice expeditionary model because it has a requirement. It is dynamically changing how it fights wars in the region because there is a requirement and an opportunity to exploit a change in situation that is so vast that it could propel their longer term objectives if they can play their cards right right now. Now, I say that wanting to say something else conservative right now, too. The truth is, Iran is in, in some cases a much worse position in the region than it was a few years ago. They used to have a client in Syria for free that had monopoly and the use of force within his state, and Iran had free access to it. Now, Iran has a lot less and has to pay a lot more for it. But if Iran and Russia can succeed in ousting the U.S. from the region over the course of the next few years, then they will have drastically advanced their objectives and ended up a lot stronger on the back end. So a lot of analysts, and I agree with them, look at the situation right now on Iran's behalf and see a lot of 
vulnerability. But Iran also just got a big infusion of cash. Russia needs one. Iran wants military advanced equipment. Russia has it to sell. There are a lot of economic relationships that are forming in the region right now that are within the bounds of tolerance of the international community that are being deliberately exploited because they don't exceed the threshold of tolerance. So one of the challenges I want to pose to you, because I think that you may be, in your professional capacity, better positioned than I to solve it, is to figure out how to make sure that our bounds and our parameters continue to be strengths and sources of leverage for us, rather than weaknesses that enemies and adversaries and actors who simply want us out of the region are exploiting in order to achieve that outcome. Because, as was mentioned, if our objective is specifically to make America safer by countering Salafi jihadists, we do need to recognize, and I genuinely believe this, that the region is a lot less safe if Russia and Iran are the guarantors of security than we. And the global Salafi jihadi threat is going to prosper in that environment. So we cannot prioritize Salafi jihadism without making sure that our presence in the region is durable. I am concerned as we forecast past the existing indicators and imagine their implications that Iran is going to succeed in driving national politics in Baghdad in the next couple of years and that our invited presence into Iraq is in jeopardy. I think we're going to have to face questions like, well, if Iraq doesn't want us to base, are we going to continue to do so? If our answer is no, where are we going to base? <laughs> Jordan is a safe answer to that question. Uh, but I, as again, an expeditionary intelligence analyst, am looking at some indicators that make me concerned that Jordan's security is also degrading over the course of the last few years. There are lots of threats that Jordan manages all the time that are still there. But there are some indicators of change that could either be nothing or could be indicators of serious challenges that Jordan is facing. Challenges that could cause Jordan to take Russia and its courtship a little bit more seriously. Russia is also courting the rest of the Sunni bloc. The Sunni bloc doesn't behave like a Sunni bloc anymore. So one of the other things that we're going to have to recalculate is how it is that we're going to work through partners in the region, in particular Sunni majority states, to counter Salafi jihadism when they're losing leverage and increasingly needing to look to other guarantors of their security in order to counter Iran. I'm concerned, in particular, that Russia is going to pit Egypt against Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Russia has successfully brought Turkey into tripartite talks with Iran and Russia and Syria. So let me pause on Turkey for a moment, because one of the original questions that was posed to me in this briefing is to describe the region also in terms of foes, friends, and bystanders. It is getting harder to define our friends in this environment. And in many cases, I'm not going to point a finger at them. Their circumstances are dire. But Turkey is in a particularly weird position right now. And I'm frankly trying to figure out if those are the three bins, what bin to put them in. 
I'm starting to think those aren't the right three bins for the kinds of conflicts that we're going to be facing in the Middle East going forward, which are getting increasingly complex. Turkey's number one grievance, PKK, whom we are backing in northern Syria. Turkey's ostensible number two grievance, which used to be genuine, and I'm not so sure how they feel about it these days, is Bashar al-Assad in power in Syria. We have found ourselves on a different side than Turkey on those two issues. Issue number three, perhaps ISIS. Turkey early on was not putting up a barrier to ISIS that is as substantial as what they're putting up now. I would classify them as anti-ISIS actors now. But their biggest ground partner in the fight against ISIS is Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has been tricky in this midst, too. When I've said that they produced the social revolution in Syria that they really wanted to achieve, the way that they did it was fascinating. They didn't take the nominal lead. It was, in fact, a big problem for, for Al-Qaeda when ISIS declared that Jabhat al-Nusra, which was the main Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria uh, before ISIS seized Mosul, ISIS declared that that organization was part of them and subordinate to them. ISIS at that time was actually part of Al-Qaeda, so the equation went Jabhat al-Nusra is Al-Qaeda officially when ISIS made that statement. That was actually a really big problem for Al-Qaeda. They didn't want to call it Al-Qaeda. They called it Jabhat al-Nusra. Now they're calling it, no, they were calling it Jaysh Fatah al-Sham. They keep changing the name. Now it's something abbreviated by my team to HTS. I'm afraid I've forgotten exactly what its new name is. But it keeps reconsolidating organizations, umbrella groups within the Syrian opposition that are essentially extending its control over how they fight and how they govern territory locally that is outside of the control of the Syrian regime. Al-Qaeda is de facto controlling large portions of Syria without calling it Al-Qaeda. Well, why aren't they calling it Al-Qaeda? Well, frankly, because it really works for them that we're targeting ISIS in a concentrated fashion. That takes care of one of their problems for them. It also allows them to grow in a way that we're not focused on countering. It's a dilemma for us. How do we support the Syrian opposition against Al-Qaeda, against ISIS, without fighting or working amidst groups that are also fighting with Al-Qaeda? We haven't really cracked that code yet. We framed that problem as one that we needed to tackle five years ago. We're still really in the starting gate in a lot of ways. And I, again, don't say that with censure. That's a really hard problem to solve, particularly if you're not going to have a huge force forward working with them the way that we had in the Iraq War. But that's not the way that the Syrian conflict has gone. In many ways, al-Qaeda has uh, advanced its program in such a way that it's going to be very hard for us to start a program like that ever, particularly in northern Syria. Southern Syria, there's still a lot of things going for us, and there could be opportunities going for us. In eastern Syria, after ISIS loses control of portions of the Euphrates, which I imagine is a military objective that we have set for the near future. So, in sum, we have ISIS. I very much agree that 
we should have a strategy for how to defeat ISIS. It is a huge problem, the things that ISIS uniquely does. The cultural genocide, the brutality that repulses everybody else, the control of territory by a non-state actor who achieved it through force with a terrorist army. But our focus on those unique aspects has given opportunity to those who are proceeding with more insidious and quiet strategies that are specifically designed to stay within the band of tolerance. And those strategies have also advanced. Because they have advanced, they have produced synergistic opportunities for ISIS to remain. So they're making it very hard for us to win at that goal. I don't think we can disambiguate them. These problems are not only occurring inside of Syria. All these problems are particularly heightened in Syria, and it is increasingly difficult to separate the Syrian war from, frankly, the rest of the world. I'm really struggling to think of bystanders. I'm not sure that I would put anybody in that bin. I think it is important to imagine the ways in which the Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Iran, Russia dynamic in Syria could occur elsewhere. I am concerned about what happens in Iraq after the fall of Mosul. I think that Iran in particular is setting itself up to try to make sure that they are in an advantaged position over us after that happens. I think that Russia's joint operations room in Baghdad is poised to piggyback and that there's going to be a move that is potentially couched as an invitation for Russia to participate in or take over the coalition operation in Iraq. And it's going to be presented in a way that makes it hard for us either to separate it from our objective against ISIS or to figure out what to do about it without taking on a direct conflict with Russia and Iran, also without ceding the territory completely. There's a, a Russian doctrine for reflexive control that basically encapsulates what I just said. How, with no force, to get, in particular, the US, to get put in a box wherein they're strategically paralyzed, where you get the win against the US because they don't move when they should. So that's the deliberate calculus that we're facing. So how do we act within, within the norms and the bounds that we've set for ourselves that really are core to our strategic culture in wonderful ways that we don't want to sacrifice? How do we keep those strengths without getting boxed in by those kinds of strategies? Like I said, it's not just Syria. It's increasingly going to become Iraq. It's increasingly going to become Turkey and Egypt and other states in the GCC that are finding Russian overtures for military sales to be appealing. Russia is reinvigorating its regional strategy for strategic basing along the Med. My team is asking questions like, is there going to be an exclusion zone that Russia and Iran put together that's going to limit our access to the Eastern Med and possibly the Suez? Those things haven't happened yet. I'm intel, I'm supposed to be looking forward. But those are the kinds of challenges that I think we need to work backwards and make sure don't start to form while we're trying to set conditions 
for a strategy that we cast against ISIS three years ago. So this is perhaps the final point I want to end with as we open up to questions. I haven't talked about ISIS in that much detail, and I'd be happy to do so. ISIS is, of course, also not only in Iraq and Syria, nor is Al-Qaeda. How are we going to adjust the strategic culture that forms plans and executes them deliberately and pristinely without forcing ourselves to be linear in our approach? I would suggest we are still linearly pursuing ISIS based on correct intel estimates from 2014 that are no longer correct now. So how do we keep up these changes? I think the one big advantage that Russia, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Iran have over us is that they seem to be adaptable much more quickly than we. And as this situation is evolving, they therefore have the opportunity to shape it in their interests in a way that we don't seem to have. So how do we be deliberate and fast? I doubt that that is necessarily a legal question, but I do think it is a strategic question. And as we're looking at the legal implications of how we're going to behave in conflicts in the Middle East going forward, I would submit to you that that is a big challenge that I don't see anyone having solved yet. And I think it's a big barrier to our progress that we're going to have to overcome. So I would submit that for your consideration as well. So let me start off this beautiful morning of a conversation with those kinds of frameworks and uh, ask you to take it from there. What are your questions? Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thanks very much for your talk. I really appreciate it. I wonder if I could ask you to elaborate um, on two um, points. First, where you started with uh, the relationship between ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the extent to which their views are shared and are not shared. Um, so I am a lawyer, right, a law professor, and that's my area of expertise. I read, so for example, Lawrence Wright's Looming Tower about Al-Qaeda and the origin story of bin Laden having two views, a conception of the near enemy and the far enemy, but it, quite expressly taking the United States as you know, given that we were there in Saudi Arabia at the time, et cetera, taking the United States as a central enemy, declaring war against the United States expressly, et cetera. I don't remember, you know, as this ISIS unfolded, the development of the growth uh, of ISIS unfolded in real time, I don't remember a sort of similar assessment that ISIS viewed the United States as the enemy, right? ISIS had this sort of immediate goal of wanting to establish a caliphate in the region and so forth. Um, and that struck me, uh, at least at that level of perception, right, as a pretty significant difference coupled with, in 2014, the president's statement that right, we don't detect ISIS as a threat to the United States per se, right, this is a threat to our ally Iraq and so forth. That strikes me as a pretty significant right, difference in focus between the two groups. Is that right? Has ISIS's focus 
changed? Has it changed in a way that something other than responding to the very active attacks the United States is now right, conducting against it in the region? So that's, that's one question. And then the second question is just, if you can say a little bit more about the progress against ISIS on the ground, right? So there's obviously this enormous, um, enormously complex set of actors in the region, enormously set, but the, my perception from the news, right, is that ISIS, which quickly gained an enormous amount of territory early, has just steadily been, relatively steadily, right, over a period of time, been suffering a series of military losses, losing territory in the region, and looks on a path to continue to lose territory in the region so that it ultimately, maybe in a year or two, I don't know, looks more like Al-Qaeda in the sense that it doesn't control this territory. Is that an accurate assessment of what's going on? How does that change what we should be doing in the region? In other words, we may be facing a battlefield victory of sorts, right, in the sense of depriving them of territory. Is that overly optimistic? And if it's not, then what do we do? I'll stop. Those are two brilliant questions, and I really can't blend my answers. So let me take the first one. Um, the theorist I recommend looking at to understand what is like between ISIS's and Al-Qaeda's strategy is Seifold Adel. He scripted a phased military strategy for how to get from point A to point B. Point B is a caliphate to which the Muslim world adheres that subjugates the non-Muslim world. That's the goal. Where the near and the far elements of the strategy fit in is more of a question of how and when. So it is an interesting question. It was one that really challenged uh, me in 2014 when ISIS first did a few things. They, they first you know, started to articulate uh, how it was going to attack the West. It first established its external attack organization. Uh, it established its first wilayats outside of Iraq and Syria. We're trying to understand, was that part of the plan? Or is this a reaction, perhaps a reaction to our airstrikes? The overall conclusion I've come to is that it's a planning factor. It's part of the plan. It is it is a tool that can be used by either organization. One of the crazy challenges that my uh, counterpart, Al-Qaeda analyst, um, she's extraordinary, Catherine Zimmerman at the Critical Threats Project at, uh, at AEI, uh, is continuing to say is that we, she doesn't actually expect Al-Qaeda to launch uh, global terror attacks right now because it's not expedient. They're in a different moment of their strategy right now. Does that mean that they aren't global terrorist threats? It is advantageous for Al-Qaeda to be considered sufficiently defeated by the US at this moment. They don't really want, in her opinion, to change that conclusion. They're perfectly fine to move in a low profile form right now, pervasively in numerous conflicts. Al-Qaeda, sorry, ISIS is in a different moment where they find that it is incredibly advantageous to play chicken with state armies, like the Iraqi security forces, with the possibility that they could win. And if they win, then they get cascading opportunities, which is perhaps where I want to frame the answer to the second question. I was in Iraq, 2007, 2008, 
as a soldier when uh, AQI, frankly, the, the same root organization as ISIS, uh, was a disrupted terrorist network on the run. We nearly, or at least sufficiently to our feeling, defeated that organization in Mosul in 2008, November 2008. The organization was back to pre-surge levels of strength in Baghdad by May 2013, five years later. It would take significantly less time for ISIS in its current strength, which is far stronger right now than AQI was in 2008, to come back to 2014 levels. They are counting on the ability over the long haul with, gen with a generational, perhaps that's too limited, uh, a very, very long-term uh, strategy to survive, recompute, and regenerate and reconstitute a military campaign, expecting that with each iteration, the enemies that they're fighting locally are going to be weakened each time, and the barrier to their reentry will have been lowered. When I look at Iraq now as a barrier to ISIS's regeneration compared to Iraq in 2010, 2011, it's no comparison. The Iraqi security forces were actually strong in the 2010, 2011 timeframe. We left a strong army there. So I don't see military victory on the horizon for us. What I see is a continually underscored message that Salafi jihadists can claim, which by the way, it is advantageous for the whole movement. ISIS is actually, though I think Al-Qaeda would take you know, issue with my saying this, the vanguard of the movement right now. They are setting conditions that are advantage, um, that advantage the whole movement. Uh, even though they're doing so independently, uh, that the conditions that they're setting are teeing up all the other campaigns. In the immediate term, it's teeing up Al-Qaeda beautifully. I mean, Al-Qaeda's message in Syria to Syrians for a long time has been, don't worry, we're not them. We're just Al-Qaeda. You know, we're, we're the softer side of Salafi jihadism. You know, we're not going to do the brutal things that ISIS is doing. ISIS doesn't do those things because it's trying to help out Al-Qaeda, but the effect is not very, very positive for Al-Qaeda. So the contest for me and the vulnerability for ISIS in Iraq in particular going forward is not that we're going to be able to declare a military victory against them. Okay, we're not committing the kinds of forces that would at all compare, in my view, to what we did to them in 2008. 2006-2008. So we're not going to defeat them to the same degree. They are a lot weaker now than they were in 2014, but here's 2008, here's 2014, I would put them about right here. Still a lot better off than they were a few years ago. So that's setting them up for a messaging victory, not a messaging uh, patchwork kind of an effort. Furthermore, I really do see that this interchange between ISIS and Al-Qaeda over time is increasingly going to become blended because the phases that Al-Qaeda is in is going to transition into one in which the distinction matters less. But in the immediate term, the biggest challenge to ISIS in Iraq is going to be Al-Qaeda. It's going to be dominance over 
Uh, what I'm concerned is going to be another Sunni insurgency because the grievances that the Sunnis were expressing in 2013 have not been addressed. Their situation has simply gotten worse. That if the Iraqi security forces increasingly are put into positions to be guarantors of their security and are increasingly dominated by Iranians, that's a recipe for something that we've seen before in Iraq, and it is not good for us. In that kind of environment, again, barriers to ISIS's uh, survival are reduced, so ISIS will remain. It will simply have to contest with other actors for dominance of a Sunni militant movement. But that is going to increasingly look like Syria, if I'm right. So I, the therefore clause for me is that uh, Mosul is not the victory lap. It's not the finish line. It's a mile marker. And we can't expand simply to take the last two other cities that ISIS controls and then call it victory. We're not close. This is not a short-term victory equation. It's a very long-term uh, management requirement. And we're going to have to think about how it is that we want to posture long-term while there are very near-term strategies I'm anticipating to try to get us out, uh, which could align with our impression that we're close to victory in a way in which we say, OK, I think that would be a very bad idea. Hopefully that answers your question. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Jeff Korn. I was struck by the, uh, the comment you closed with, which was that this is probably not a legal problem. Uh, I think one of the challenges that, that the lawyers in here recognize is that the United States is engaged in this campaign under a constitutional authority defined by an authorization Congress enacted after 9-11 to deal with the people responsible for the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And so one of the issues that comes up periodically, and some of us have spoken about this uh, in front of committees, in the Senate or the House is, should Congress uh, update, refresh the authorization for the use of military force to better define the nature of the enemy we're fighting? And it seems to me that from a legal perspective, one of the necessary restrictions being driven by the existing legal authority, the constitutional legal authority, is that you have to limit your operations to the organization that you can trace back to Al-Qaeda uh, originally in order to act within the scope of that authorization. If you were to write the kind of subject line, right, if there was a new authorization for the use of military force, who is the enemy? Who, who would you define as the appropriate kind of focus of congressional authorization for the executive to continue to wage this war to achieve the type of broader strategic um, outcomes that you think are so vital? It's a brilliant question. Uh, I, wording is very important in my business, too. Uh, I'm going to try to answer your question a little differently than the way that you asked it, because the truth is, uh, when it comes to putting down on paper who our enemy is, the cleanest answer, in my view, is still ISIS. I might broaden it to Salafi jihadism so that we aren't making the distinction between ISIS and Al-Qaeda that advantages Al-Qaeda so much. Uh, but in practice, it's going to, in practice, there, are, there is a good way, I think, that we could enact it and a way that I think is too surgical. 
to enact it by focusing on strikes that will kill members of the organization as the ultimate goal uh, is not actually going to suppress the terrorist threat that the whole thing is designed to do. What I think we need to be talking about is how it justifies our, how, where in the world we array our military forces and how we use them to set conditions on the ground that stop this dynamic spin that works so well to the advantage of those organizations. I think what I'm also saying is that my imagination space for how we stop the spin is to get back in the merry-go-round and in the playing field in which we are operating in the same environment as Iran and Russia, Al-Qaeda and ISIS in more places in which they are doing so because that's what we need to do in order to defeat Salafi jihadism. So I'm not sure I would attack the problem that I'm addressing that we have more than one foe by establishing an authorization for each one of them. I hadn't thought about that, so I will continue to think about it. Uh, I think there are probably some at think tanks uh, who study Russia and Iran in particular more than I do uh, who might have a different answer to this question. But I still see that even within the current AUMF and within the intent of defeating Salafi jihadism, that there's a lot of room to behave more strategically than I feel like we are at the moment. Uh, and that I'm interested in trying to craft that strategic space. Um, I'm not sure we are constrained legally to the ways in which we've decided to enact it. You may tell me I'm wrong about that. Um, I'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to trying to defeat these organizations simply through HVT targeting. I think that's part of it, but not all of it. So we need to be talking about what else is actually authorized. Yes, sir. So uh, there's obviously been lots of discussion about the line drawing in the post-colonial Mideast and how that was not really the best way to determine borders. Um, do you believe that the situation, as you describe it in the Middle East, is such that Iraq is a survivable entity as it's currently constituted? Or do you think that there needs to be a partition or some other... Uh, remedy and what's in the best interest of the United States? Is it in the best interest to have a combined Iraq between Syria and Iran or how do you think that would play out best for the United States? That is a wonderful question. Um, question honestly Ambassador to which I'd love to know uh, your answer uh, after the briefing. Wonderful, then, I'll, then I will join you. Um, what I used to say three years ago was that partition is not going to improve things, that borders are always contentious, and if you change the borders or the, uh, the government function to focus more on a federal plane, what you're going to get is Shia Iraq functioning as such, Kurdish Iraq functioning as such, Sunni Iraq behaving tribally and not 
in unison and a bunch of territories, including the capital, that will be contested. That doesn't strike me as an improvement. So three years ago, very, my very clean answer was it's got to be a unitary state because moving in that direction is just going to produce war. My answer now is a little bit less confident because I am not sure that Iraq is on a path to uh, political recovery. Uh, I think it could be, but I think we are uh, potentially a decade away and that our paradigm for what we're aiming for post-Mosul needs to be more conservative in terms of Iraq as a wartime environment, wherein that question is still germane, but it's a future question. I would say Iraq right now is not functioning as a unitary state, and we can't flip our fingers and cause it to be, uh, but I would, I would prefer to address it by trying to secure Iraq and establish solutions for local grievances in Iraq right now uh, without a political legacy that cements us into that kind of a posture. Uh, I think the unitary model needs to uh, be the underlying theme throughout that recovery period. Though we asked the question in Syria, I'm even farther away and skeptical that I don't think Syria is recoverable, uh, but partitioning it is uh, a way to decide that the war has ended and that we can disengage, which is problematic. I think we need to regard these as theaters that need to be secured. And once they're secured and on a direction where they can be governable by states again to address what the states actually are. Yes, sir. I want to follow up just briefly on Jeff's question about the AUMF issue, because it is a, a big issue for lawyers. Uh, the UN Security Council has repeatedly said that ISIS, or ISIL, dash, what, dash, whatever you want to call it, is a splinter group of Al-Qaeda. The, uh, the 2001 AUMF specifically said those groups responsible, that the president determines were responsible for the 911 attacks. Obviously, Al-Qaeda was the, the primary group. Would you say the Security Council got it right when they say that uh, that ISIL or ISIS or Daesh, whatever you want to call it, is a splinter group of al-Qaeda? It seems to me if, if that's true, if the Security Council got it right, then you don't have to have a new AUMF. I'm not saying one wouldn't be useful. The problem is the, the, the one that uh, Senator Kane is talking around has a three-year sunset, uh, which can be renewed. But when you tell the enemy the Americans are only allowed to fight for three years, you tell them, "Hang in there, guys. You're going to uh, you're going to to win this thing." So, you know, what is would, would you describe ISIL as a as a splinter group of uh, Al Qaeda? Yes, I still would. Uh, it was an affiliate of the Al Qaeda movement until it began to behave independently and to disregard Al Qaeda's senior leadership as its own. Uh, when it moved forward with uh, objectives on its own, like declaring the caliphate, uh, it splintered. But in terms of its organic emergence, yes, it did come from al-Qaeda. Um, as ISIS proceeds globally, which we also didn't necessarily talk so much about, it is grafting itself onto existing al-Qaeda networks. Uh, and in many cases, it's trying to compete with al-Qaeda in those zones, but the sinew and the circuitry of the Al-Qaeda network is how 
uh, ISIS continues to prosper. And yes, I would still fundamentally say that we need to be treating them more and more the same as opposed to distinct. Jessica, thanks again for a superb uh, intelligence briefing on it. Let's assume, uh, as you've indicated uh, implicitly in the, in the briefing, that there are at least two long-term United States strategic uh, interests and objectives. One is defeating uh, broadly uh, uh, Salafi jihadism, whether we're talking about ISIL, uh, ISIS, uh, or uh, Al-Qaeda, or other uh, groups. Uh, the second is stability in the region. Uh, the United States not being pushed out of the region, uh, Iraq particularly, for example, in the aftermath of some quasi-short-term uh, uh, defeat against uh, ISIL uh, with Iranian and, and Russian uh, influence. And uh, much more broadly, actually, a greater, greater sense of uh, in the entire region, um, and um, so those sort of two major strategic overall objectives uh, in the area. Uh, could I ask you just to speculate a little bit on what would you see as any kind of grand strategy for the United States? What do we do? Uh, what do we do with Egypt? What do we do with Saudi Arabia? Uh, is there any chance of turning Iraq back away from Iran uh, at this point. Uh, what, what could be done um, in a sort of a broader grand strategy for the United States in dealing with those very long-term, very serious objectives uh, on both sides? I don't think you're going to like my answer. <laughs> I think about this question a lot uh, because I see a number of the other actors I described today as having an agility that we don't seem to have, but recognizing that part of the reason why they have it is because there are authoritarian regimes for the most part that don't have the kind of standards to which we hold ourselves, and I don't really want to emulate those characteristics. So we need our own grand strategy. We need to recognize that the one that we're pursuing right now is not working against them and that they are working against us and that we need to do something about that. But I would like to see us do a couple of things. Um, first of all, and I think you're not gonna like either one of these, I think we need to recognize that we are in more of a Cold War world than we have been in a long time and that I personally internalize that uh, on more than one plane. I think we could overemphasize Salafi jihadism and not realize that Putin is actually trying to reverse the, end, the outcome of the Cold War, literally. I don't really, for example, subscribe to the idea that we need to posture ourselves militarily to counter global insurgencies and devolve our military capacity that is literally designed to counter 
threats like Russia. I think we're going to need to be prepared for both. I think they play off each other whenever we focus on the other. Uh, I think we need to be prepared to be deployed militarily more extensively and more durably. No, we don't do permanent basing. I like that too. Uh, but I think we need to be expected to challenge rather than expected not to. I think something that we used to say a long time ago in Iraq is still true, that the playing field and the cards that are being played most aggressively by these other actors are uh, Sunni Arab populations in the region, and that we need to figure out how it is that we're going to engage them uh, against these threats within unitary states. And that that is still the uh, central challenge in my view. We have done it well in the past, but we know what it takes to do it well. And I think we're going to have to adjust our expectations of uh, the conditions under which we deploy boots on ground specifically, and for how long, and in order to accomplish what objective. Uh, I think the objective is going to be more durable and contiguous and generational, and that the main thing that I'd say that we need to adjust for our grand strategy is not uh, to abandon our focus upon a state-based solution model, but to be prepared to, to be there long-term uh, because these states are vulnerable to uh, demise without that condition and that other actors who would come into that disorderly environment don't have the same requirement for stability in the region that we do. They are not a replacement for our stabilizing influence uh, and that we really do need to stop the spin, particularly within the Sunni bloc in the Middle East, that I think is uh, partially resulting from the expectation that we won't lead. So we need to stop the spin. And then I think a lot of this is going to become much more manageable within uh, the kind of strategic frameworks that we've had in the past. Uh, but we have to have a strategy to stop the spin. It's going to be an investment. Um, and I think we, we do need an expectation that within current authorizations, we need to deploy long term to stabilize. Uh, and that that is going to require a kind of uh, geometry that we haven't used recently because it's not a local war. So a regional strategy that does involve long-term military presence is, I think, my answer. Yes, sir. Jessica, you're right. I didn't particularly like your answer. As the dean indicated, we've been in that region for 15-plus years now. And some would say with little to show for it, other than trillions of dollars spent and thousands of lives lost. And what you're indicating is that we simply need to bite the bullet, and if we're going to have an effective strategy, a long-term strategy, we have to remain there for the foreseeable future, and probably in greater numbers than we have now. Do you think that, that one, that's politically feasible? Uh, the American public can tolerate that. And secondly, uh, let's simply pose this. 
what happens if we say we've been here, we've tried this, uh, we need to have willing partners in the nations we're attempting to help. They haven't been particularly willing. They'd rather fight themselves than fight the enemies we think they should fight. And we simply say we've done the best job we can and withdraw. Strategically, what threat does that pose to the United States, particularly when you indicate that others are taking advantage of the fact that we're pouring millions of dollars into the region, thousands of troops, and they're exploiting the fact that we are absent in other areas of the world. Uh, can you give us your thoughts on that? Certainly, uh, one grave and one hopefully hopeful. <laughs> uh, the grave point is that as much as we've lost, there's a lot more that we could lose. I think if we withdrew from the region, what we would get are threats that are scaled to the Mediterranean very quickly. All of them, all four that I just listed, particularly uh, Russia, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. Uh, we would get a re uh, Iranian hegemony. Uh, there frankly would be nuclear implications. And I think the problem scales from there. I don't really think you can withdraw from this. Uh, I also think that, as I'm saying, there needs to be a durable military presence. There is a way that we can consider how to use that force. Uh, that you know, that is, that force can be more agile with a different mission than we have given our forces before. I'm talking about strategic positioning and local engagement strategies. Before I'm talking about putting states back together again. So in my imagination, the suggestion I'm making that we need durable military force in the region does not equate to we had this number of troops per grid square before, we have this many more grid squares now, we therefore need an exponential greater number of troops which we would never put forward because we frankly don't have enough divisions right now for the problem that we just described. Maybe we will, <laughs> but we don't right now. Okay. I'm not actually trying to scale in that way. What I'm trying to say is that we need to put ourselves into position. And perhaps the data point that I'm failing to mention is the ways in which Russia and Iran are positioning right now. Far less resources committed than we have imagined in the past. And they are achieving strategic effects with very little. We would counter that effect, frankly, with very little we put it into position well and with the right message and the right mission. So I'm being vague there because I'm still imagining what those missions could be, but I think we could use our force in a more agile way in this region, long term, giving ourselves an advantage that uh, doesn't require you know, hundreds of thousands of troops. I think that message is part of what is uh, giving uh, the debate some spin in Washington and has over the course of the last five years, uh, expecting that it's uh, that when we talk about boots of ground, we're talking about either very, very little, which is a recipe for mission creep, or so much that it's not politically tenable. Um, I think that it's not bifurcated in that way. There's actually a number of things in the middle that we could do and that we need to open the aperture to the bog boots on ground discussion and actually be creative in that space because that's the place where we really do have an advantage over everybody else. If we're not going to play the way that they play and we're going to play our way, then we need to play the thing that they're all scared of. But I think that we can do that. And I'm, coming, I'm saying this as you know, a former military member who 
lost a lot of classmates in those wars. Uh, I don't mean to say it flippantly. Uh, those other actors are also not interested in direct confrontation with us. So part of the calculus needs to be how to engage in a way that frankly doesn't trip up a direct conflict, but also doesn't seed the ground for fear of it. I think we need to be operating in that space. Yes, ma'am. I realize uh, we've only had President Trump in office for a short amount of time, so it may be too early for you to really properly answer this, but I'm wondering about what your reaction is to uh, what he's said so far about uh, plans in the Middle East and, and plans to defeat ISIS. What, what do you think is consistent with what you're advising, and what do you see as inconsistent with what you hope will happen? My general answer is going to be very unsatisfying. I don't know yet. Uh, I am pleased that Al-Qaeda is becoming a bigger component of how it is that we talk about defeating ISIS. Uh, I'm not sure it's on par with what I'm saying yet, and that is that we need to broaden it out to the Salafi Jihadi movement globally uh, rather than to target groups surgically and be satisfied when we just don't hear from their senior leaders for a long time. So. Uh, there seems to be some mo movement and momentum on how it is to uh, frame not only kinetic uh, techniques, but the broader elements of national power against Salafi jihadism. That does sound consistent with what I'm saying. Uh, my general feeling in Washington right now is that the administration is still deciding how it wants to regard its strategy vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Iran. And I think I'm very content for them to... Uh, think on that one <laughs> and uh, come up with uh, a deliberate strategy. Yes, sir. Jessica, you seem to indicate that we lack the adaptability that some of the other players in the region possess. That's been one of your principal themes. And you also indicated that Perhaps, and I may be reading something into this, but perhaps we lack that adaptability because we are playing by the rules, so to speak. We're complying with the law, and the others do not have that as, a, as an element in their operational capabilities. Do you think, as an intelligence officer and an analyst, that our necessity of having to comply with the law affects our military capabilities and affects our adaptability in the region? Genuinely positively. Uh, I think our force and our reputation is built around the expectation that we will police ourselves. So yes, we do hold ourselves to a higher standard and yes, that does uh, constrain us. I'm less concerned in the actions that that prohibits than I am with the amount of time that it takes to decide to act. When I talk about agility, I want us to be able to get into a quicker decision cycle where something happens on the ground and we are either ahead of it or can react quickly enough to it that we are actually engaged in the kind of contests that are maneuvering on the ground right now rather than thrown off with centripetal force. So I'm not saying that we need to abandon. Rather, I think we need we need to figure out how to create the kind of decision cycles 
that are perhaps either pre-approved or that there are bans of permissibility or some way of achieving accountability for action and authorization for force that will allow tactical and operational commanders who are put into these positions that I'm suggesting need to be there more in which so that they can, they can engage. Um, I, uh, I also think in the past it has been a hallmark of our partnerships that our partnerships know our norms and our adherence to it and that they can rely on us for those kinds of principles as well as execution. I don't want to change the nature of our partnerships off of that basis either. But the problem is they also expect that we are going to be paralyzed or just too slow or not as committed to their interests as they need their partners to be. So they're choosing other guarantors for their security, expecting to be part of a web of transactional alliances that will break down. They are not relying on us anymore. So whatever has produce the deficit of confidence in the U.S., we need to fix. And then we can have our norms as glue for the strategic culture of our uh, partners and allies again. But right now that's in jeopardy because they don't trust that we'll be there. Thanks very yes, much for your remarks. Uh, I have two questions, and one actually builds up a little bit on what you were just said. Uh, as you say that the target really is Salafi jihadism, I wonder if you could comment on the progress or the lack thereof we are having currently with Saudi Arabia and their attitude uh, to essentially support that comes out of the, the kingdom, uh, particularly in light of their perception of the threat of Iranian hegemony. The second question is a much bigger one, which says, You've articulated that what we're looking to do in the, not the, the medium term is stability, but at the long run, this is a political problem and a legal problem. And it strikes me personally as short-sighted if we haven't figured out what do we do to reinforce state building in a region that has been uh, sorely lacking in, in democratic norms and ideals for far too long. I agree with you. There is a question of distance and a question of velocity. And I think what I'm trying to say is that there is a dynamic spin that is highly destructive to the region right now that is erupting because we are not engaging and that we need to fix that problem before the dust can settle and we can see the path forward for state building. I think it is not possible and politically not tenable to try to approach state building in the current threat environment because the, con the conditions are that bad. They, they are so much worse than they were five years ago. It's really unbelievable. So we can't put on our 2007 thinking caps to try to imagine what needs to happen in Iraq and Syria. I definitely agree it's strategic to look at end states and work backwards, but there's no straight line. So we need to change the dynamic, and then we can problem solve, is what I'm saying. The dynamic is highly disruptive, and frankly, um, I think we're a lot closer to being kicked out of the region than we'd like to realize, particularly if we're drawing conclusions like, oh, this, this is, there, there's, there's no path forward, I give up, or none of these partners are doing anything, 
can't work without them, not going to do it for them. You know, we've got NATO allies who are, you know, aligned with Al-Qaeda and Russia and Iran against us. You know, if we look at those problems and decide that we can't get to state building without those parameters set in place, we do have two options. We concede or we can change the dynamic. But I think there's actually quite a lot that we could do to change the dynamic, and that's just the creative space that I'm trying to say. We need to work that problem uh, in order to set up the kind of state system integrity reinforcement that I agree is actually the real problem. Which, to the previous question about the AUMF, I don't have an AUMF creative answer to this because I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> but the real problem that I see and the threat of Salafi jihadism to me uh, really is much more vast than terrorist attacks to the homeland. I'm looking at the you know, systemic demise of states. When people talk about disorder erupting uh, and multiple challengers to state integrity. You know, and how there are revisionists and rejectionists, and the revisionists just want to change their power equation. Well, frankly, the order is falling apart. So those revisionists are having to recalculate and are recalculating what they want in a system. And I, I agree with you that state integrity has got to be uh, our, our, our number one priority. Uh, but there are also actors moving in this space right now, and we need to be engaged in that contest if we're going to have a shot at it. So I'm just saying the velocity is a lot higher than the velocity was the last time I remember participating in a question about state building. So I'd love to get back there. Yes, uh, Saudi Arabia is a little bit of a black box to me. Uh, I agree with how you framed it. Um, I think that there are a few very scary signals to my analyst self that are em emanating from it. Uh, number one, I don't have eyes on uh, how the population in Saudi Arabia is reacting to regional events. Uh, I don't have a lot of understanding of what Saudi Arabia has been doing since they decided not to support the Syrian opposition in the north. I know that they are losing momentum within the GCC and that Egypt is gaining it and it feels like at their expense. But I'm painting that picture very broadly to say that I'm a little bit worried that Saudi Arabia is uh, both becoming more vulnerable as a partner of ours and potentially a little bit more volatile because of how well their adversaries are doing. So I don't know where that goes, but if I were to place for intelligence purposes, what would you call an NAI on Saudi Arabia, a named area of interest, or we're going to slew intelligence collection to figure out what's going on there. Um, I agree with you. Um, I, I don't know enough about Saudi Arabia to say where that's headed, um, but I would say that I'm given current indicators and trajectories, I'm, I'm worried about it. Uh, and I think that's another place where we could imagine no change build planning assumptions around that expectation and find that our whole plan could come unraveled if something drastically does change inside of Saudi Arabia. But again, I would want to defer to the uh, ambassador's expertise on uh, where that imagination space meets with uh, reality over the last decade.
Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.